Welcome to the Lakeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today we're going to be talking with Shuvo Ghosh. I've been wanting to talk to Shuvo Ghosh for a long time. He's a pediatrician who has 16 years of experience working with transgendered youth and their families. Uh, one thing that's frustrated me a great deal in trying to make sense of the whole trans phenomenon is that you have people on the one side who are for it, and for the most part, you know, kind of people who write op-eds, for the most part, they seem to have uh, an, a sample size of one, sort of an N of one. Um, either they are themselves trans, or they are the parents of trans kids, or friends, or loved ones. And so, you know, obviously, they have uh, very interesting things to say, but they... You know, you always are left with the question, is this person actually representative or are they not, right? Um, and then the people who are, right, these sort of diatribes against um, trans communities usually have an N of zero. They have <laughs> even less, right? So I, I've been trying for a hard time to find somebody who has uh, a large sample size who's worked with a lot of these kids and teenagers and their families and can sort of help us to make sense of all of this. Um, so Shiva Ghosh is exactly the person that you want to talk to on this subject. All right, well, before we get into the podcast, um, a couple of things. First of all, if you'd like to support the podcast and we need your support, there's a couple of ways that you can do that. You can support us uh, by sharing the podcast uh, in social media, on Twitter, Facebook, you know, whatever social media you use. You can like us on Facebook, join our group. You can just put in Likeville and you'll find us. Uh, you can uh, like us on Twitter, follow us on Twitter. It's at the Likeville pod. Um, you can uh, also... Uh, Support us financially by going to patreon.com uh, and looking up the Likeville podcast and supporting us that way. That's a, another way to do it. Our sponsors are very important. Uh, it costs a lot of money to make these podcasts, to put them out there, the various subscriptions to softwares and to various platforms that we have to take care of, and then also... Uh, the producer of the podcast um, has to spend a lot of time editing these and putting them out there. So you're, um, if you think it's important that we have sort of civil, intelligent, long-form discussions, right? I mean, right now, so often you look, you listen to the radio, you watch TV, it's people arguing with each other, um, back and forth it's sort of gotcha journalism where you interview somebody and you're just you have like a three hour long interview with them and then you you edit it down to 20 minutes to make them look like a complete idiot or you know whatever make them look like whatever you want them to look like so i mean here on the likeville podcast we we don't play those kinds of games we don't we're not engaging in gotcha journalism this is a long discussion. We don't have any time limits on our conversations. And we're trying to actually have sort of people getting together and having an intelligent conversation about important issues. So if you think this is important, uh, support it. 
right? Get supported. It's it's uh, it's important. This podcast is also brought to you by our sponsors. We have a number of sponsors of today's episode. Uh, the first one is Seb Furtado Photography. Uh, Sebastian Furtado is a professional photographer. He will teach you either online or if you want even in person, if you happen to be in Montreal, uh, he will teach you how to use your camera. I, they're just the nuts and bolts. This is not like an artsy fartsy uh, class where it's, you know, sort of like express yourself. He will teach you how to use the tool, how to take really, really good pictures. And then he'll also show you step by step how to edit them in Photoshop and Lightroom. And I can tell you that I have seen friends of mine, uh, one of my friends, Nathan uh, Pigeon, uh, who is, you know, actually like a, a machinist. He works on diesel engines, you know, and stuff like that. And he took one of Sebastian Furtado's courses and just within one week, uh, the quality of his photographs was just night and day. It was much, much better. I mean, I he improved after taking a little class with Sebastian more than people I know, former students of mine who went and did photography courses at Dawson or Concordia University. Uh, Sebastian really is a very, very gifted teacher. He will teach you the nuts and bolts of how to take a good photograph and how to edit it. So if you're interested in taking one of his online classes or perhaps uh, taking one of his classes one-on-one, if you're interested in these, go to www w.sebfurtado.com slash store for more information. Today's podcast is also brought to you by Good Mix Foods. Uh, I just ate some of this before <laughs> before recording this podcast. It is absolutely fantastic. The one I just had was, what's in this thing? It's uh, chia seeds, buckwheat, pumpkin seeds, almonds, flax seeds, Sesame seeds, dried coconut, raw cocoa, uh, nibs, dry. It's it's just absolutely delicious. You you have it with yogurt, uh, wonderful stuff. Good mix, uh, blend eleven original. It's a fantastic stuff. It's paleo. It's really really good. If you're on any, pretty much any kind of diet, you want this stuff. It's like it's uh, gluten free. It's you know fills you up forever. It's fantastic. Really really good stuff. Uh, today's podcast is also brought to you by Elsa's Bar. Elsa's is the best bar in Montreal for my money. It's a fantastic place. If you live in Montreal, you probably have heard of it already. Uh, it's on the corner of Dubillon and Roy and Plateau Montréal. If you're planning on being in Montreal, definitely go to Elsa's. It's a fantastic place. Really, really good environment. Elsa's is the kind of place that locals go to, right? If you want to go to the place that the drunk teenagers from Boston go to, you, you go on Bishop or Crescent or maybe St. Anna or something like that, St. Catherine. Uh, but this is a little bit off the beaten track, just a couple of blocks away. But you go into Elsa's and that's where actually uh, Montrealers and people who live in the Plateau go to. Fantastic place. Highly recommended. And this podcast is also brought to you by Café Lali, uh, Carré des Artistes, Galerie d'Art. Uh, this is a symbiotic relationship. It's a family-owned fine art gallery cafe in an amazing space in uh, St. Henry. It's got great coffee, fine art, fantastic place. 
they supply us with a number of things, including the coffee that we give to our guests. It's a wonderful place. All right. Well, uh, without further ado, I give you Dr. Shuvo Gauche. Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today I'm going to be talking with Shuvo Ghosh, who is a pediatrician who works with trans kids and their parents and kids that are in general just gender non-conforming. He's also a writer, an activist, a musician. Do you still have a band? Yeah, absolutely. You do? Okay. Yeah. Well, welcome to the podcast. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how sure. you ended up doing because i mean when we were at hopkins what you're doing right now did not exist right so clearly you did not learn this in baltimore yeah so how did you end up doing this so it's a great question i mean um so you know you've given a little a little mini intro and i think uh, that's a nice synopsis i've got varied interests and i think it's because i've got varied interests that i kind of ended up almost falling into this uh area of healthcare. And um, I, I will say that, you know, when we when I was at Hopkins, I did have the chance to meet some of the early, a couple of the early pi maybe pioneers. Someone would some would call them, um, you know, conjecturers about this topic. Um, and it was very er it was kind of early on in the understanding of what you know, the pediatric population would really do when it comes to gender. So I actually during my uh, my residency training in pediatrics. Um, encountered a couple of teenagers who were questioning, you know, not, not only their sexual orientation, but started asking questions about their gender identity. And to me, I just thought it was a very interesting question to ask. You know, it's uh, having uh, decided to specialize in development and behavior, I, I, three, I thought, um, you know, development isn't just physical, um, it's emotional, it's spiritual, it's uh, psychological. And gender is one of the, the questions that, you know, that, that comes up in, uh, in a, a variety of situations, right, in, in our society. So essentially, um, having worked with a couple of those kids, um, you know, as a resident in, in training, um, just kind of wondering more about how best to care for kids who even ask these questions. Um, during my fellowship uh, period, uh, I thought, you know, I'll open the doors to, uh, you know, kind of inviting some of these kids to come ask questions. And... What ended up happening is that um, it ended up being parents much more than, than teens, um, parents of younger kids who started asking questions about the development of their kids' gender identity or non-conforming behaviors. And I thought I'd get, you know, a couple of kids a week, um, you know, maybe uh, asking a question like this or, you know, realistically, maybe even one every couple of months. Um, it ended up being weekly multiple questions, lots of kids who didn't really have any issues or, or problems, um, but um, more and more uh, kind of an awareness and a, an opportunity to talk about this. And so it just kind of grew naturally. It was very organic, um, and there wasn't really any specific um, you know, desire for me to say, well, this is going to be my you know, bag. This is going to be my thing. Um, it just kind of grew out of a need uh, that I found. Um, increasingly, people were asking questions about gender identity, and uh, and I started working with these families. So it kind of it kind of grew just, sort of naturally. Just happened, yeah. 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 I, well, one of the reasons that I was excited to have you on the podcast to talk about this is that uh, 
I find that when you're when you're dealing with this issue of like trans kids, it's really really hard to to get anybody who seems to have like more than an n of one or zero because right. you know very often if you talk to people who are uh, very like very sort of pro like activists you know right. often they're uh, you know I have friends parents you know that are like this of of uh, trans kids mm -hmm. and they are you know as as loving parents who want to advocate for their kid they're super super you know but ultimately most of them usually only have like an n of one right right or maybe and then uh, when you so when you hear like you read like an op-ed typical op-ed on this issue in a newspaper the one that's for is basically testimonial right you know it's it's sort of more interesting than an infomercial but you know the same sort of thing testimony and the ones that are against in my experience almost always have an n of zero right, right? they have no actual experience of what they're talking about. right so both of them i mean obviously the testimonials are better than with the n of zero but uh you seem to have have dealt with a lot of kids yeah, like this. Yeah, you would absolutely. have a bigger bigger issue because right. uh, without going into too much detail because I don't want to like I don't know, I don't want to uh, embarrass him but like I, I my wife and I dealt with this with like with uh, one of our kids and he was very much uh, when he was young uh, liked to sort of pretend he was a cat, pretend he was like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, like all different kinds of animals and also to pretend he was a, a girl or a boy. And he liked right. to do both. Right. And he liked to wear dresses, but he also liked to do all the sort of stereotypical boy stuff sure. and play with worms and salamanders and catch snakes and get dirty right. and play. But he also <laughs> right. liked to wear, you know, do it in a tiara and a pink dress and sure. like all this stuff. Right. So and when we tried to sort of talk to people about it, we got completely polarized responses right from some people we got like uh you need to nip this in the bud this is mm -hmm. this is like or say yeah, it's just a phase gonna grow out of it right don't encourage it in any way don't um and then other people saying oh this is amazing you should and they were almost like so excited about it like some of our friends they were so excited about it it was a little weird right it was um right exactly like, you know like sure. it was like like is this like what's like, happened is this like a nice like fetish for you or something like are you right you know like so and it just seemed very very hard i mean there's one the the only person i can really think of at the time who was a voice of sanity and reason is our mutual friend yeah. uh, kimberly manning right, right. Um, who was totally reasonable and sensible i thought but so given the bigger sample size that yeah. you have yeah. what do you tell a parent when they come in like i might have come into you and sure. said like uh what what's going on here should i be worried should i what right. can i do to be supportive what can i do to be cool like what should right. i do so you know i think this is exactly uh, probably almost the perfect question you know to be able to address this from a from a uh you know broader perspective because that's actually how i felt i, I, I almost say sometimes i fell into it i've always been interested in in trying to um, reach out to marginalized communities um because uh, you know growing up um, uh, in the States as a minority myself, um, you know, it was just, I grew up in Chicago, okay. uh, mostly in Chicago and I uh, lived a bit in Baltimore, as you know, and then yeah. in Washington DC and Honolulu, um, before moving here. And, um, you know, it, you know, there's a certain awareness. It doesn't have to be the end all be all, the only definition, uh, that you, that one uses for oneself. Um, and I think we've, you know, had exchanges talking about, you know, even the, the, the sort of nature of identity politics where people pick one identity over others. Yeah. And, you know, there's, 
you know, to use a a buzzword, this intersectionality um, within an individual, right? It's not just across groups. Um, And so how do you pick which one, right? So if you're a person of color, which is not even a term I love very much, but but someone who's a visible minority who also happens to be an invisible minority, say a sexual minority, for example, you know, a gay black individual. Is it the black part that's more in, important? Is it the 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 neighborhood they live in, the the, the social socioeconomic status that's more important? Is it their ethnic background that's more important? So I, I'm saying all this kind of to, as sort of groundwork to sort of say I've always been interested in trying to reach out to those, especially in healthcare, who've had less access. And in the States, we know there's there are problems with access, even amongst affluent communities. There are people who have to sell their homes in order to afford cancer treatments. Um, it's just the way, the nature of what happens um, with, uh, with uh, healthcare in the States. So that drew me towards working with gender variant kids a little bit in the sense that they really don't get much understanding. They didn't get really much of a, of a chance to, to access healthcare in an unbiased way. And part of the reason for that has been because of this polarity that, that you've just talked about, this, this bipolarity that we've got in society. And it is really um, almost, I would say, driven ideologically on both sides. Yeah. Right. And so this is the problem. It's because, you know, you people who argue that peop- that those who are advocating for, say, trans rights, um, for the gender nonconforming to sort of exist and get access to medical care, that those people are somewhat ideologically driven. Some of them are, right? Some of them absolutely are. So the po- a point is being made. There's a valid point. The people who are making that point, however, are also ideologically driven, of course, many of them, of <laughs> right? Who are saying they really don't actually think that this kind of a phenomenon is feasible or biologically sound, or they're quoting certain statistics and often very, very much cherry picking what kinds of studies that they're looking at in order to try to disprove the ideological part of this what might be called a trans phenomenon or gender ideology is is like a buzzword that people are using as well so it's it's really goes more than that it goes far far larger than that and when you start actually having clinical experiences and personal contact not just in passing not just with that n of one or n of three reading op-eds reading op-eds and you you know you go to dinner with a group of friends and oh my goodness one of them is a trans woman oh my god let's hear her story and then you get that story you get one um as soon as you sort of open it up and you actually get the chance to also and i have to say I'm, i'm very fortunate as a clinician to to be privy to confidential real very in-depth kinds of conversations, which people are not even going to talk about and don't feel comfortable bringing up, even if they're arguing for their own rights. They may find a limit and say, this is as far as I'm going to reveal. I just, I can't go into further details. But with a physician, with clinicians, with team members in our healthcare team, um, they will be able to talk about that. And so having access to that comes back to um, maybe a, a clearer way of looking at the question that you that you started out with, that the question you posed, which is if uh, you've got a non-conforming child, kind of interested in a bit of everything, or you know, sort of both sides of the the gender, um, uh, you know, sort of gendered behaviors that we've got in our society, the toys, the clothing, all of that stuff. Um, should you be worried? Should you not be worried? How should you support? Should you not even support? It it is quite individualized. It's family based. 
And you have to look at more factors than just the single behavior. Context does matter in, in, a, in, a, in a sense. Um, and that's why I think being overly ideological about it can cause problems because there's a presumption made that everybody fits into one category or another. They're all either truly trans kids who are going to grow up to transition fully or nobody is trans, that trans is just a made up phenomenon. It doesn't exist. Neither of those is true. Um, and so what I usually tell parents of kids um, who are non-conforming um, or sort of exploring is that exploratory behavior is normal. And some of these kids may actually start talking about more in inherent or core characteristics about themselves that do reflect an identity, that they do reflect that they are not necessarily feeling comfortable in their body or in the role that they've been given. And so how far can they go to stay comfortable? Can they actually still remain comfortable without ever having to socially transition or push the envelope or do any kind of medical interventions some of them absolutely so I, I will explain that to parents especially of younger kids saying you know there are plenty of kids who do exploratory behaviors they it's not that they grow out of it but it evolves it changes and it ex is expressed in another way and for others it persists but that's all that persists it's not necessarily the case that they're all going to decide. Yeah, our, our kid completely I'm grew out of it. I'm going to transition. Completely. Right. Was, it was just like kind of having fun, like a little shapeshifter. You know, a right. little kid being right. like a like morphing. Because it wasn't chameleon, just, it wasn't just like style. morphing yeah. over like boy-girl boundaries. It was, it was morphing over boundaries of like the animal world, you know, becoming right. like, I'm, you know, I'm a dragon today. I'm exactly. like, you know, I'm, I'm like all sorts of stuff. And right. They're and, like living and, in this sort of liminal space. And, and age, I think right? and, and that exactly is true. And I think I think what's been um, difficult for a lot of people to understand is that the development of a gender role is some, has to pass through that liminal space as well. Right. And that development, it, you can't necessarily force it. Right. And there are certain inherent characteristics and people say, well, well, obviously, biology, you know, as if, you know, like you just bold face biology in all caps and then <laughs> the argument is won. It's over. Well, yes, but we don't actually know all of biology in the complex networks that exist in our brain. Um, we have lots of clues. We have in increasing evidence that there are certain pathways, but it, everybody does have a certain personalized experience because of what you know you know something that maybe you have talked about in the past and i'm sure you've read about it, this whole epigenetic epigenetic phenomena yeah. that occur in our lives right so the genes you're born with the chromosomes you're born with the the body parts you're born with they do get affected by the environment that you're exposed to and in ways that we cannot necessarily control mm -hmm. it's the air we breathe it's some of the food we eat it's the exposures to certain chemicals that we don't even know are actually in the air until we test them 20 years later and say, oh, yeah, I never knew living next to that factory had also these effects. So it's a lot of extra stuff that's in there. And we can't even even sibling order. Yeah, so sibling weird order. Stuff. Like Absolutely. If, like second boys in families are, Absolutely. are far more likely to be gay. Have yeah. You read that? Yeah. And the, the theory is that there's like some 
sort of uh, testosterone or some genetic material that's left over in the yep. in the uterus. I mean, that's right. wild. And the hormonal that's exposures totally are wild. different. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Totally wild. It's very, very interesting, but, right? Uh, so so that's I, the I'm stuff, not, right? I'm not so much... I mean, I, I'm interested in an intellectual sense in the biological basis mm-hmm. of it. But for me, it's more of a phenomenological thing. Like, right. this is someone's reality, right? right? And so, and it's very, very real to them. And uh, so, you know, I don't really care very much whether, you know, what the biological what the reason <laughs> was. Yeah. I yeah. don't like it's not, you know, it's not hurting anybody and it right. helps them a lot if they can do that. But how are we, when first with the Kinsey report and stuff like that, when right. suddenly conversation was opened about homosexuality, you know, the Kinsey report said it was one in 10, right? right? And then later on, uh, they they realized that Kinsey had actually um, sort of heavily sampled certain populations, and it was it, that was actually not true. And the true number was more like what do they say, like two point five three actually sure, around three percent. Pers- yeah, yeah, like three percent of the population yeah. are yeah. are gay. Yeah. So uh, with the numbers that you know right now and what you've right. read, what are the numbers on how common is how how common are trans kids? So that depends on the definition. Right. And so and that's another let's go with part. a really broad, really broad gender, one. Non-conforming. gender non-conforming. So if we go yeah. with gender non-conforming let's go all the way from like like hardcore tomboy, you know, very kind of, um, you know, a kid that's just very sort of androgynous and can sort of uh, mm-hmm. let's let's go with a really broad one from somebody yeah. who's very, very androgynous to straight up girl in a boy's body right boy and a girl wants body. to yeah wants yeah. to transition let's, the let's whole, go full deal. nice and broad. Like broad what would you what would you, you know, say a number some ballpark you know in my experience um and it, with the literature that's out there right now which is correlating to the actual clinical experience that we have it's probably somewhere around that one in ten number it's that that ten percent that high yeah for if you're going that broad that's how right? broad i want to go um and so that is quite high and i think Wow, I would have thought it would have been quite a bit less. Right, right. But and that the thing is, we just have to look around and we don't need to overthink this. We just need to walk out the door and look around us and say, hmm, 55 years ago, 60 years ago, something like that, um, you know, down the streets of Montreal, you wouldn't see this many women wearing pants hmm. or actually showing up with short hair. Hmm, quiet revolution has changed some <laughs> things, you know, you know, so all of a sudden, you know, what used to be kind of totally antithetical to mainstream normal behavior has actually been normalized. So it does, it sort of indicates to me that those people who actually sort of kind of play along the frontier, the lines of, uh, you know, sort of, uh, again, they live in that liminal space. They're sort of in the gray zone, even as adults. Um, they're probably a far greater number of them that our society isn't really prepared to accept in all contexts yet, right? Yeah. So, I mean, there are probably some guys just like, yeah, you know, if I could wear a sort of pink dress and like, or a pink blouse or something to my workplace, yeah, once, in, once in a while I might choose to do that. Doesn't change their actual identity. It's just a preference. It's part of that broad nonconformity that we're talking about. But we don't really have that many workplaces where everybody's going to be cool with that and everyone's going to say, Okay, no problem. You know, Jimmy over there likes to wear his pink blouse, you know, on Fridays. Cool. Thumbs up. We have a lot of judgment still about those kinds of things. And it goes both ways. It's the the extreme tomboys, the women who are, you know, come across as very butch. They get sort of categorized into sexual 
orientation definitions or there's there's a, the, there are stereotypes made in a prejudicial way. So it's there's that bigotry that's almost felt subtly, even if it's not stated or expressed clearly. So a lot of those people just sort of do it on the weekend or do it in the safe spaces or do it when they can, or maybe they don't do it, they think about it, but when they get a chance to clinically express it, when, you, when you're taking a healthcare history and you're asking, you know, where do you stand on this, on these kinds of things in your own life? You know, what do you want to do if you had the full freedom, you know, wave the magic wand and the world were exactly as you wish it, a very significant percentage of people would say, yeah, you know, I'm not really as much of a fan of the sort of very binary model that our society has set up, or at least the binary that the creation that exists in the West, the way we've defined it. There might be another sort of expanded binary model that still fits and a lot of people are comfortable with, but that allows for more interplay between the two sort of polar opposites and the polar extremes. Um, so I think actually that those, those numbers um, are significant and perhaps we might even underestimate them with saying 10%. I don't know. I, I'm mm. not going to say that I have a definitive answer on that. Um, is it a slight overestimation? Is it a slight underestimation? Perhaps. It's emerging info still. It's a conversation yeah. we're still having. So what do you think is the, the overlap between, uh, between homosexuality, bisexuality, and sort of gender... Because, you know, once again, going right. back to my whole problem of like the yeah. N of one or zero. Right. If I look at my students, my, right. my trans students and gender nonconforming students that I've had, which I don't know if I were to total it all up, it's maybe it would come up to somewhere like 100 over all the years. Sure. My, I would guess right? yeah. the ones that were out and I knew about um, in my limited experience with an N of approximately 100. It seemed to me like the vast majority of them. Um, were uh, were heterosexual, um, so there was right. not a necessary overlap at all. Right, and so there were some, but it didn't seem like it seemed like just as normal as somebody who was uh, sort of uh, a boy in a boy's body being interested in girls. If it was a girl in a boy's body, he was interested in girls. Right, she was interested in girls. Right. So, what is you? You have a far bigger end than me. So yeah. Uh, is the what is the overlap? So you know, I think this is actually a really interesting question because um, I think there is some conflation, right, that occurs oh, yeah. uh, between. That, that's why I pointed out because in yeah. my experience, the conflation is not true. <laughs> right, right. There's like, confl yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's there's conflation about sort of feminized guys or masculinized gals, if you want to use these terms. Um, who get labeled as gender nonconforming in that broad sense that we yeah. just talked about, uh, but are not actually trans. Yeah. Right. And so if we parse it a little bit and we sort of like kind of try to figure out now what are the subgroups under that broader umbrella of nonconforming group, um, there is certainly a significant percentage of those those people, youth and as they go into young adulthood, who decide for themselves, how they're going to express themselves, you know, clearly and, and how their how their gender is the most comfortably expressed. But their sexual orientation tends to conform to whatever gender identity they've got. Right. So there's actually a, probably just as many gay trans people as there are straight trans people. Um, That's been my impression. Yeah. Just, I mean, in, in, yeah. if you look at the general population, say how many how many like, you know, gay 
individuals are there amongst a group of sort of gender conforming and gender congruent individuals. That percentage is probably roughly the same percentage if you just had an exact same number of trans individuals. And the, I think what's what causes this conflation and what causes more of the confusion is because these are all um, gender and sexual minorities who are marginalized groups. Um, thank you who, so much, Sebastian. Thank you. Really appreciate <laughs> Sebastian that. Sebastian just brought Thanks. us coffee. He's a beautiful man. Yes, thank you. Really appreciate <laughs> it. Yes. Oh, yes. nice. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Cafe Lele. <laughs> yes. All right, so um, you were so, saying, yeah. So, yeah, so what I would say is that those... Um, cheers. Oh, yeah, cheers. Thank you, John. <laughs> Appreciate it. Um, I would say that those... Um, th the, the fact that they're in marginalized groups allows even for people who are outside of those groups to kind of conflate things because... And, they, and people within the group end up slightly conflating things too yeah. because it's just as not all lesbians and all gay men share sort of the same values or have the same access to healthcare or the same access to economic opportunities, uh, but they're lumped together as a group. Um, and again, we, we talk about different sort of layers of uh, opportunity, you know, a visible minority gay man and a, uh, you know, European descended white gay man may not have the exact same experience. They may not have the same exact kind of opportunities that, that, that they may, they may not, right? You know, it, it, it's, it's a, a, sometimes a flip of the coin. It's where you live. It's who you've met along the way, where, what neighborhood you happen to have settled in. And sometimes that's literally a flip of the coin. Um, certainly in places like Canada and Northern Europe, it's more of a flip of the coin than it is in a lot of places in the U.S. where you don't necessarily get to just pick and choose as freely but all of those factors end up lumping groups into larger segments that may not actually have natural kinship so i think that's what ends up happening is that you've got lgbtq and uh, you know you can say i for the intersex community and you add even others who are non just non-conforming and a sort of plus plus um, yeah that's getting you know, way too it's long it's getting longer man. and longer <laughs> and i almost feel yeah. like adding letters is actually not helping right i mean no, you not. just if you if you're saying you're a larger community then just just come call yourself that community and adding just say that the letters are part of it you know and i think yeah. then queer, asking queer for the was really good for a while it I was that that could have just covered the whole thing might you have know, very very elegantly but it, i guess it might have i think a lot of people were attached to more more specific labels so. yeah but i but i think it does come back to that point where then there might be overlumping and people who don't want to actually be part of X group are, but are okay with Y group and still being affiliated want to be identified as such indiv individually as part of the larger umbrella group. So e, they, they can be queer, but they're trans queer. They're not just lesbian queer, you know, and it, it, it's, it's a little bit um, complicated to say that, you know, you have no right to self-determination in terms of the, the way you want to, uh, you know, identify yourself. Everyone has that autonomy. So I, I think it's really for the conversation. It's for the other people who are actually hearing about this that, you know, sometimes there's that confusion, right? That, you know, you get people self-identifying in a way that others don't know what that means. And so then the identification doesn't mean anything to yeah. anyone <laughs> other than the person who's saying it. Yeah, right? I will, I've, I've noticed right? in the last few years, I teach this one class at Abbott called Love and Friendship. And we deal with, uh, you know, a lot of different issues, but we deal with sexuality and different kinds of uh, ways of expressing it and stuff like that. And it's amazed me just like in the last few years, the number of new, strange, sort of more rarefied 
kind of taxonomy of like desire (laughs) right gender expression it's becoming like there's like a new name for something practically every semester whereas it used to be that there was a new name every like five ten years yeah now every semester there's a few new ones that come up in the class and i'm like wow this is uh this is getting more and more interesting all the time (laughs) it's true it's really true and sometimes it feels like it's defeating it's self-defeating it's defeating the purpose um but then again, I mean, perhaps we don't have to take it as seriously as some would make it because identifying groups that perhaps never had a chance to express themselves previously is simply, it is taxonomy. It doesn't necessarily have to translate to massive change in action. It's recognition. It's like identifying yeah. new species. I'm glad you get that because right? I've mentioned that to, I don't know, probably like 10 people over the last year. Because that's exactly how I see it. And they've all looked at me like I had three heads. I see it completely as taxonomy. And I see it, this is exactly how human knowledge about anything Absolutely. works. Right. I mean, I look at like when my kids were little and they were first learning how to speak. Uh, at first, anything that was round and you could eat it was an apple. So exactly. like, a, like an orange was an apple, right. uh, kind of a, a pear was an apple, anything. And anything that was kind of long and you could eat and it was sweet was a nana, banana, right? But then gradually they would realize, okay, this apple is actually an orange. Right. Right. And this apple is actually a pear. Mm-hmm. And so they would start off with these broad categories. But then with greater knowledge, you always like get more specificity. Yeah. Right. And so when I, I remember I was... I was traveling around Southeast Asia when I was uh, 18 years old with a bunch of my bunch of my friends, and there was this guy from Ontario that I hung out with a lot. A tall white guy, blonde, blue-eyed, about like six two. I'm like five eight. I've got green eyes and brown hair. The guy was like a head, you know, way taller than me. <laughs> and people would always mix us up all the time. Because we were like in Indonesia and Malaysia, uh, and they're yeah. like, I'm sorry, you guys the, all look the same. The two white guys. <laughs> you, know, right. you all look the same. Right. And I realized that, you know, the more experience you have of any group, the more you start to see the subtle differences. Absolutely. And the less experience, the more they merge into one solid kind of category. Absolutely. Right? So you, you get, if you've spent a lot of time around East Asians, it's so obvious yeah she's korean right he's japanese um he's like northern chinese he's those whereas right, right. or if you spend a lot of time around white people you can tell an italian apart from a swede right but yeah if you don't they're all just white people yeah <laughs> they're all just yeah you know, and East that's, and that's right? how our brains do yeah. do work i mean this is this is actually um you know very well documented well researched um uh, about the development of categorization in in the yeah. human brain um and a and a typically functioning human brain in early years learns categories right and starts learning natural categories and i think this is actually really really interesting in that you, you think it surfaces and essences uh, i yeah, guess yeah yeah exactly such an amazing book yeah but yeah showing right. how like the brain itself yes. works by categorization absolutely it's phenomenal right like exactly so people like the postmodernists, like when we were in school who said oh, we can transcend categories, uh, their response is, that's total bullshit. Right. It's impossible. All you get is more specific categories. Exactly. You never transcend them. Yeah. It's you impossible. Know, we, we, we will, you know, if we, over, if we overly focus on this, we will end up with 7.5 billion categories, <laughs> right? Because that's how many people yeah. there are on Earth. And if we 
try to merge them and we get them into, you know, two billion categories, it's still way too many, right? But it's better than 7.5 billion, but it's still too many. But then if we go the other way and say there's only five, we're making a massive mistake. We're making a huge error in overcorrecting as well. So we just have to understand that, you know, our brains do function in finding categorization, but we are not, we're not supposed to be um, sort of saying because we categorize, we're impelled or compelled or, you know, sort of forced into thinking th about things one way or another. We have to sort of take it as it comes. We have to have to look at what the, the actual context of the situation is. Um, you know, seeing a Sweden Italian, uh, you know, in a bar, um, and you kind of can't tell which one's the Sweden the Italian if you come from East Asia, uh, does it change anything? Do you, do you have to treat them differently? Or do you have to treat them the same? It depends on the context. I mean, if one's rude, and one's pleasant, well, you act pleasant with the pleasant one, you know, sort of ignore the rude one. And it doesn't matter because it's not because they're Swedish or Italian. It's because of a different characteristic, right? So telling them apart or telling or not being able to tell them apart doesn't necessarily have to, you know, play a huge role in what actions we take on a daily basis. And I think this is very, very interesting in terms of gender, right? And coming back to kind of the, the, the topic at hand, kids, very young kids naturally can tell so almost by behavior and other cues, the categories that do exist. Like all people are like adults are adults at first, right? People are people. And then they start realizing they're different kinds of body shapes and types. And you know, there's there are what we call boys and what we call girls. And, you know, so we but we start adding extra information. It's just like saying a banana and an orange. I mean, they know they can see there's a difference between the shapes. So if we start adding extra informations by saying oranges tend to be sort of sour and citrusy, um, bananas are sweet. Usually when they're ripe, they're sweet. We've already shaped them to think oranges really aren't sweet mm -hmm. and bananas don't tend to be sour. So when then they get a, a, an unripened banana, a green banana, and they bite into it and it's sour. They're like, what the, this, is, this ain't no banana, <laughs> right? So we've... We've yeah. given them extra information about what's a natural sort of categorization that their brain is starting to figure out and develop on its own. So that's the, that's the subtle part. Like we can't help it. We, of course, we're going to provide information, but we have to be uh, clear that kids start recognizing people of uh, one gender or another or people who are sort of non-conforming in their gender as a category too. And we start telling them, well, no, you're supposed to categorize them. You should pick pick one of the two for the for those people. See those people that you can't really tell. Um, pick pick man or woman for them, and the kids are like, I don't know, I can't really tell. Like they don't seem to look like a man or a woman, and they seem like another group to me. But if you tell me, mom, sure, okay, you know. So that's how they learn to almost decategorize the people who are sort of non-conforming. And I think it's an actual natural category that does exist. So the kids actually, the youngest kids have the least problems. Like, you know, siblings of the non-conforming kids, older siblings tend to have more of an issue with it. Younger siblings tend to be like, oh, yeah, I kind of knew. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, what is, you know, so it's, one it's thing interesting. I've noticed people who have like strong feelings about these issues, uh, you know, in either direction, they tend to the people who are like really kind of critical of it they tend to say well this is largely something that is invented mm -hmm. and that it's it's almost they see it uh, the most extreme um have told me that 
that this is this is akin to those uh, implanted memories, you know, the, all the mm-hmm. scandals that happened, sure. right, in the 80s right. and 90s, like where they would sort of repressed memories, and right. it was totally put in them by the therapist. And yeah, they invented Hyp- this. hypnosis yeah, and all of things this stuff. like that. Yeah. So the, the most extreme version would say, like, okay, well, trans stuff is basically just being kind of put into these kids through mm-hmm. suggestion mm-hmm. and reinforcement and things like that. That's like one. But the people who are um, really sort of advocates and people, people who work with these populations and stuff like that, if they are not themselves sort of gender nonconforming, mm-hmm. you know, like I've always been male and I've always, I knew that like early on and I was always fine with that. So um, those people, I find that if you talk to them enough, they have a sort of a conversion experience. They have a uh, conversion on the mm-hmm. road to Damascus experience where right. they sort of realized, okay, wow, trans is like a, a thing. Right. It's real. What was yours? Yeah. So for me, I mean, I have to say, um, you know, early in my life, the ex- only exposures I had were probably the ones that, you know, most people had because I didn't actually personally get to meet trans people. Um, but I'd see them on Oprah or I'd <laughs> see them on a talk show somewhere, yeah. right? And it was like, oh, oh, that's, that's a different group. And it was purely based on the presentation at that time. And, and cross-dressing was sort of the presentation for all the gender nonconforming people. And they didn't really talk so much about the gender nonconforming female to male population. You know, the women who were masculinized or androgynous male presenting, or it's sort of more butch presenting, if you want to use that term. That wasn't really the focus. It was mostly men who dressed as women as it was presented. Now, many of those were actually trans women, but they were presented as cross dressers or something. So mm-hmm. that was kind of, that was my exposure. And so I, I, I kind of saw that, it. That kind of doesn't count because I saw that stuff too. And I just thought, well, that's like being goth or being right. a rocker. Well, that's kind I just of thought it. it was like a fashion thing. Well, it's that like, was me too. That's what you are. That's the that's the style of being in the world that you're most comfortable with. Exactly. And I was like, you know, more power to you. It was. That's it was not per- the same thing. As not trans. at all. Not at all. So what? Yeah. So so I'm, I'm. I guess what I'm saying is that was sort of my worldview at the time. There were people who were performers or who were into this, and then slowly, some of those talk show hosts decided prior to the the entire sort of Jerry Springerification of talk shows, um, they started inviting actual transgender individuals. And mostly at that time, they were called transsexuals. That was the term. And that is a term really that still kind of exists for adults who've kind of done all of the therapies and surgeries and things like that and prefer to self-identify as saying, I've changed sex. But whatever, whatever term they wanted to use, it was for people who actually did identify as trans. They weren't, you know... They didn't watch Tootsie and decide, hey, it's a kind of a cool, funny thing to do or do drag performances. They were actually transgender. And it was at that moment when I realized, okay, that that's not just a performative category. It's an identity category. It exists. I don't really know any of those people personally myself right now, but I guess they must exist. They they are talking. There's a person sitting there talking to Oprah. That's not a fake person. I have no reason to disbelieve their story. Interesting enough, right? And because I was always interested in human um, development, even from a very young age, I was just kind of quite fascinated by the sort of psychology of of, um, of people's behavior. Um, as I got into my studies, I was always sort of kind of looking to see what other grouping 
um, you know, there could exist, you know, in terms of the ones I'm exposed to and the things that I've, I have yet to see or, or learn about. And that included lots of people who had genetic syndromes or people from other ethnic groups that I had never met yet or people who spoke a language I didn't speak. Um, and so the sort of aha moment you know, maybe the, you know, the, 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 the Saul to Paul moment yeah. was really, like I said, when I was a resident um, and meeting a couple of patients who were younger, they were sort of older teens who actually everyone just presumed that they were trying to come out of the closet to be gay. Yeah. And that was just how it was. I mean, and they're like, oh, how do we tell the parents? And was it? And I was at a I was at Georgetown. So, you know, it's a it's a Jesuit university. Yeah. I was, even contraception was not really available in our in our hospital pharmacy. You know, so even the adolescent clinic had lots of difficulties dealing with gay teens, you know, sort of figuring out what what's the right approach healthcare wise other than, you know, you got a throat infection, you treat the throat infection. But if we want to psychologically sort of support these kids, what do we say? And I realized, wait a minute, I don't think these couple of kids that we're talking about are actually gay. I, I think they are not talking about being gay at all, but they just don't have the vocabulary. And I said, hmm, I should read up more on this. I should actually try to understand and I should try to see if there are biological underpinnings. To some extent, there are for some. And for others, there are biologically unknown underpinnings for the time being. And how can we actually help them? What vocabulary do we want to give them? Because they deserve to not sort of sit around, mope, drop out of school and never get a job and then end up on hard drugs, living homeless somewhere. I mean, that, that was the direction so you a couple were in, of like them your, were taking. you were 30s at that point? Like? Uh, be, uh, late 20s. Late, late 20s. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. So you, you came to it like earlier than I did. So. Yeah. I came to it really late, actually. I, I um, like I said, I saw it as being basically like being a rocker or a goth or right. being like an evangelical or whatever it just like it was mm -hmm. a style of life that right. that made you happy and you know knock yourself out i don't, I don't care but like right. i i had friends growing up who came out you know pretty early on so i knew like i knew gay guys i knew lesbians i knew bi that was like totally on the radar right. early on but i didn't know anybody who was, who was trans. trans the first right. time uh, the trans, you know, people talk about like having gaydar. Yeah, <laughs> you meet someone, you're like, yeah, right. he's totally gay. Like, right, she's totally like having like gaydar. Well, you can also have sort of like girl dar or boy dar, mm -hmm. right? So, and uh, my wife and I ran a, a day camp. Mm -hmm. uh, this is Sebastian actually came out with us a couple of times. We ran a day camp for a number of years, and you, if you hang around with like a lot of kids, you just like s most kids. Are, have like a very clear kind of like boy energy right? right or girl energy about them regardless of how <clears throat> how they dress you're right. just like that's totally a boy right? right and then there's a small percentage that are sort of uh very sort of ambivalent and they're sort of like androgynous and they're kind of like like the real hardcore tomboy mm -hmm, or the mm -hmm. where they're they're kind of like right in the middle of male and female my my conversion experience was i had this one kid in the camp who was uh, born biologically male, who was completely a girl. Yeah. Like, it was just like my girl dar. This was yeah. like... The energy uh, emanating this from this kid. This was completely a girl. Right. In every, and this is... Yeah. We're talking about a kid that's years away from puberty. Yeah. So this has nothing to do with sexuality at all. Right. right. This was a girl completely. And I was like, oh my God. Like, I'd never seen such a pure case like that. Right. Um, and that's that's when I and that was you know I was in my late 30s when mm -hmm. that happened mm -hmm. right so um, and since then I'm finding 
there's in a class of 30 students, 30, 40 students at Abbott. Uh, now there's like at least one student in every class, sometimes multiple. Right. Right. And it's sort of like once you, you know, once I was blind, but now I see it's like once yeah. you, your eyes are open to that, you suddenly realize, oh yeah, there's that, that girl exactly. in the class. Oh my God. She's totally like, there's a boy energy there. That's like totally a dude. Like, yeah, you know, and, and, and that's absolutely. totally a chick. Like, <laughs> and, and, and you know, it and is true. It's amazing. It is true. And, it, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's funny that you use the, you know, sort of the Saul on falling off his horse, like on the way to Damascus analogy, because um, it is akin to that. It's almost akin to, you know, the Aztecs not understanding Cortez's boat being a boat and not actually seeing it when it was arriving until they were on shore. And they go, how did these people arrive? What brought them here? And it's Quetzalcoatl, right? It, it was, and then the next set of boats that came, they were like, uh-oh, oh, oh shit. <laughs> here, come the, here come the boats. <laughs> like, oh man. Now they know yeah. what boats are. Like now they know what those kinds of boats are and what those sorts of ships really look like. It, it's, it, it, it never took them really by surprise. And it was, then it became actually identifiable. It's the exact same kind of phenomenon. That, and, and if you've never encountered a gender nonconforming person who you knew was gender nonconforming. Your brain was ticking away, figuring out some kind of category amongst the categories that you know exist and you intellectualize and putting them in that category. And once they come to you and say, actually, I'm of this category, you don't, you've never heard of this one before. Yeah. You say, oh, oh yeah, and then last year there was you know that kid and this person over there, and then, oh, last week I ran into so-and-so on the Metro. They must be in that category, too. It all starts making sense, right? So it is true that there is an almost conversion-type moment, not in the in the sense that most people would use that word, but it's sort of a wake-up moment. Let's call yeah. it a wake-up well, moment. Well, there's a word for it. I'm trying to remember what it is. The neuroscientists talk about this, and people uh, study cognition. It's called the pop-out effect. The pop-out effect, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is uh, that once you see a certain thing, and you can delimit it from a field, it becomes very easy to see that. Right. So, and I, one of the things that I, I show, you know, when we had the day camp for a number of years, I'd show the kids, if, if I teach them how to see, for instance, there's like a little green tree frog right. that is completely camouflaged on the leaf. Now, if you just look at it quickly, it just blends into green. But if I show them where to look on the plant right. and or on the tree, on the leaf, and to look in a certain place and say, do you see the frog? Once they see the frog and that imprints on their visual field, they get what's known as the pop-out effect, yeah, yeah. which is like now when they look at, suddenly they see the frogs everywhere. They're yeah. like, oh my God, they were all over the place and I didn't see them. Right. And suddenly they realize there's like 20, literally like 20 tree frogs on that bush. And right. Everybody's walking right past them and not seeing them yep. because it gets, right? So that, that's actually, yeah. uh, there was an article I think it was in Quillette, actually, which said that um, there's a, a an actual scientific basis for what we call gaydar. Mm -hmm. That it actually is like a real thing. Right. That uh, right. once you learn how to pick out certain patterns, yeah. then like they pop out at you. Yeah. Right? So that's... Uh, uh, yeah, you're because right. Because I've had you arguments. Can't really in fact, one of our guests, it. I had an argument... Uh, who says, you know, I, I don't think the trans thing is true, and I don't blah, 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 and I, I said, look, dude, um, maybe, maybe some people are exaggerating how prevalent this is. I mean, that's definitely what happened, 
you know, with homosexuality after the Kinsey report right, and stuff like right. that. Maybe that's true. But dude, for real, it's real. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm telling you, I've yes. you know, yeah. I, I've seen this. It's totally real. Absolutely. And I, th- I think that's that's actually really an important thing. It's sort of like you, you once you see it, you can't unsee it. Yeah. But you do have to see it and you have to allow yourself to see it. If you if we cognitively work so hard to not see the tree frog, we say, like, I don't believe that tree frogs exist in Quebec. That's in the Amazon. <laughs> It's only in the Amazon. Yeah. I'm not in the Amazon. Don't <laughs> give me this BS that they're, they're here in Quebec. Just stop talking. You've cognitively decided to block yourself from what others around you are actually experiencing and seeing. And that is, there is a certain reality to it. And it's not, that's not made up. That part is actually the, the factual sort of perceptual reality of being in this physical world. And that's war, where we kind of come to probably the nuanced definitions with people who are gender nonconforming, trans or in the transgender umbrella, that people who are trans exist and people who've spoken to them, dealt with them, talked to them, understand their experience and have the openness and yes, a little bit of compassion, a little bit of empathy to say, my lived experience is not the only one in the world. Other people have a different one. Mine applies to my life and what I've been exposed to. I might have a slightly different uh, story that I hear when somebody who's had a completely different experiential uh, history is going to present. If you do that, if you're able to sort of come into it with a bit of openness, then you see it and then you can't unsee it at that point. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's, it's that step of fully accepting that perhaps this is real once you've accepted that then you don't then there's no debate that you know maybe it's real or maybe it's not real. you've you've gone past that you've all passed that that line of argument the thing that probably complicates it and makes it you know makes the skeptics sort of get louder in their voices and that the opposition sort of to to people even being gender non-conforming um kind of feel empowered to sort of express that opinion more and more um, as people emerge in mainstream society as being gender nonconforming is that they see that as a purely behavioral phenomenon which is you know trendy or just like you were saying you know goth kids like you know goth boys like wearing dark lipstick and and lots of facial makeup and and you know pierce their ears like in seven places and that's a that's a look and it's a cool thing but there's no inherent biological basis to that it's a it's a preference so let's just posit that it is a preference that people who are gender nonconforming choose to present themselves uh, in a nonconforming way based on pure preference okay so what so what yeah i guess that's if that's the some people like to get facial tattoos if that's the etiology (laughs) if that's what we have to yeah if we have to accept yes nothing says i don't want an office job quite like facial tattoos. fomo right across the forehead um you know like it's like seriously if 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 that if that is the only way that you can comprehend this phenomenon being quote unquote semi-real is to say it's a choice and it's there's no inherent basis to it 
okay, well then it's a choice. It's a personal choice. It's a familial choice. It doesn't actually have, it, there's a sort of a myth that it has massive sociological and political and economic impact. It really doesn't. It's just similar to this, this transgender ban that's occurring in the States in the military. Um, where the argument was, well, all these transgender surgeries are just like blowing military money. You blow $2 billion on a B-2 bomber, and in an entire year, the entire budget for transgender care, not surgeries, some of them is just going to see their psychologist, um, is in the range of sort of a couple of million total for the entire U.S. military. So cutting that $2 million out what does it do? What does it what does it really say that that's just more of an uh, there's a, a hidden agenda to that, it seems to me, than actually being a fair assessment and an argument. So it doesn't there's no real economic or uh, or sort of sociopolitical argument to say that even if it's a choice, if that's what you have to believe, that that's going to destroy your own personal well-being and life. It really doesn't have that sort of an impact. I think it's just like the argument that used to be made about women wearing pants. And it's like women wearing pants, it's going to mess up our society. It's going to, you know, they're going to, you know, they are not conforming to the, the code of conduct that behooves a civilized society. Society did not completely collapse and fall apart because we evolved and changed our clothing styles. Mm. So, I think it's I th more. I, th I think it's more akin. If I was lo grasping around for analogies, I wouldn't go there. I would go more towards, uh, let's say, like you know, I, I got a friend who had testicular cancer and sure. he had to have one of his nuts like taken out. Yeah, and he got like a replacement nut, like a prosthetic nut. You know? Right. So it would look like the way it used to look, right? Yeah. And uh, and that was covered because right. they wanted to like make him whole and feel and. Um, Whereas, like, if you want to get, like, a penis enlargement, you're going to have to pay for that, right? Right. And a woman who's ha had to have, like, a, a breast removed because of breast cancer right. can get, like, a breast implant, and that will be covered usually by insurance because right. it's the understanding. We want to make you feel like yourself, right? Right, right. But if you want to get a breast uh, enlargement, uh, then you're going to have to pay for that yourself. Exactly. Right? So I guess, the to me, the getting the surgery to sort of conform with more like the way you feel you are like if you, you feel right. like you're a dude in like a woman's body and you'd like to right. look like that more um i would place it more in yeah. the category yeah, yeah. of like getting an extra nut or an extra boob yeah it, <laughs> it's it, like it, something in some, I some extent it's but the true. argument is that this is basically like getting a penis enlargement or breast implants like you're just right. getting why should i pay for right you know, someone else's breast something implant. that is purely like it's aesthetic. aesthetic yeah right 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 Whereas yeah. it's more like making you whole. Yeah, and and so and Do I you know think, what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I I actually very very much concur with that analogy, and I think I think you you've maybe even hit the nail on the head in in terms of why some people are motivated to feel opposition because if it's literally about you know what clothing somebody wants to wear i think probably the vast majority of our society here in canada north america western europe we're probably not going to make a big stink about it we just you know we might go personally you know back into our homes homes and say yeah that fomo tattoo <laughs> on the forehead <laughs> i don't know why that guy got it like doesn't look so great for him but you, you keep know? bringing that up yeah. is this what you secretly I, want to do I, when you retire no, you're gonna get like i actually know tattoo. somebody who got that oh, that's why really? I bring, yeah that, that, and i'm just like i don't understand it but you know 
Okay, well, Good you're a pediatrician, yes. and we're talking about adults. Yes. And I'm going to take... Well, we were just talking right. back to kids, because this yeah. is where it gets really ugly, ethically. Yeah. So you're bound by the Hippocratic Oath. Absolutely. You know? um, what do you do mm-hmm. if I show up in your office and I say, uh, my daughter is a dude. My right. daughter is my my daughter is my son. Right. Um, and been like this from day one. And I say, um, I want to get like, I want to give my daughter, you know, drugs to sort of change how puberty would naturally happen. And yeah. I want to talk about operations and stuff like that. How, How do, do you respond it? to that? Because that's where the ethical issues seem sure. to me go crazy, yeah. right? I mean, like... Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so here's, here's the thing. How do you respond? So first of all, I think um, I will I'll walk it back a little bit. Like, I think it's a really important point. I think I don't want to uh, misspeak on this because I think it, I don't want to misrepresent the patients and the families who actually come to see us. But I think that's what's actually happened. Uh, there's a bit of a misunderstanding. Um, I haven't yet met a single parent who's said what you just said. I Not haven't one. even heard of one either. But, yeah. But I have a smaller right. end than you, yeah. way smaller. Yeah. Right. But, but nonetheless, I think people believe that there are parents who are coming in and asking for that or saying that. I haven't met one yet. I haven't even really met too many kids who say, you know, la-di-da, here I am, hook me up to my hormones. Um they kind of come in very tentatively, even the older teenagers who maybe heard about this to ask questions and are sort of hoping that perhaps this might come into our conversation. So in fact, the myth that's out there of like, you know, people come in, they get their hormones like candy and they just walk out, you know, it's like they went to the the dep and they bought a, you know, a Mars bar or something. It's not actually what happens at all. Um, but are there places in the world where this is happening, or is this just Fox Not really. News propaganda? Yeah, it's a it's a Margaret you know, Lent article. Material. Yeah, yeah, it's a little bit propaganda style, um, maybe politicizing it a bit too much because the thought that goes into it is sometimes belittled. It's sort of said, well, they only had two visits, okay, but what was discussed in those two visits? How many years have this, has this topic been discussed prior in the mind of this youth? Um, and in the family or with a close friend or with, you know, another member of, you know, sort of the extended family. Um, That's all part of the confidential medical history. It's journalists are not privy to that. Fox News is not privy to that. Uh, You know, no one's actually privy to that. I would just like you to repeat that for all of our listeners. You are, you've been working with these populations for years now. Yeah. You have a very large, you have a large N and you have never once encountered parents asking for this no they they do not come in and say like oh hook me up they actually are like is there some way for us practically every op-ed that is like yeah that mentions this right and you have not even once. no because they actually yeah i know it's crazy right because they actually come in to say what can we do we've read that there are these options but they really don't they don't they would prefer not to do anything if if they could and our goal is to say, okay, let's try to identify what's going on. Does your kid actually meet any of the criteria, psychological, emotional, physical criteria that would warrant them being on any medical treatments at all, right? We, we do have to talk to them about this. Now, again, sometimes it seems, quote unquote, and I'm putting, you know, 
air quotes people can't see that on the mm. podcast but you know my hands are up in the air uh in big air quotes saying um that that these kinds of things are fast right they're they're quick and it does seem quick to some people and what i usually tend to say to to families is that it's always going too fast for the parents and way too slow for the team or the or the youth um and so even younger kids they're like oh man i wish this could happen like overnight and the parents are like uh how about over the next three decades? You know, and we're like, okay, we're gonna find some middle ground, guys. Now, there are a few parents over time, over several visits, who get kind of on board with things. And I think this might be where some of the confusion comes. They get on board, and then, you know what? In our binary world, it's just easier to be not in the middle. You're either boy or girl. So you got your six-year-old boy who loves wearing dresses and, you know, playing with princess you know sort of toys and watching princess videos and kind of self-identifies more in the girl model there are some parents who say do you think it would be just easier just like wrap this up and just like we've got our girl they ask that question they're not saying i want it they're, they're asking do you think that would be easier and we try to say no i don't think that's necessarily going to be easier but you have to see what the person's day-to-day -day life is like what's happening in their school or their daycare or their in their neighborhood who are they dealing with i mean sometimes it's just easier to use a different name because you're going to grade one and you, it's better to show up as you know little little steph instead of steven and Kids will just, you know, they'll do those social categories and they're not going to bother that kid so much because little Steph wears pink dresses and likes princesses and okay. And is it going to last forever? We don't know. Maybe it will. Maybe it won't. We'll have to wait and see. But the parents are not necessarily saying, oh, yeah, just make this switch for me. But they do get on board to ask that question. They might say, isn't it just easier to just make a flip? If we just do the flip and like, you know, then we don't have to think about this anymore. And we have to walk them back from that a little bit and say... Well, I know it would be nice if this were really easy and if this were really straightforward and you could just like press a button and then just like make the flip and just move on with life. But just even if you make some parts of that happen, just keep in mind that you're going to have to accompany and follow and watch and we're going to be there accompanying as well, following and watching and trying to figure out is this what this kid ultimately wants? Because we can't just say like, well, we've decided for you. That's see, that's where the ethical piece is. We want to have that the child's autonomy respected in both ways. We can't say, no, you're you're too young. Shut it. Don't give me your opinion. We're adults. We know better. You're not your boy. Boys don't wear dresses. That's not respecting their autonomy either. But by yeah, but the I'm same talking token, specifically yeah. about like drugs. Right, and sure. Surgeries. About, so, so surgeries, like, yeah. So what surgeries are, if, come if much I, later. If I made you king, you yeah. know, for the day, or mm -hmm. if you were before, like, the Supreme Court was right. deciding this stuff, we right. got to make rules about this stuff. Right. And they brought you in. They said, well, sure. you're, you know, Mr. Ghosh, Dr. Ghosh, you're, uh, you're an expert on this. What do you think the guidelines could be? Right. You have to be a certain age to get a tattoo. Right. Right. And if right. You, you have to be a certain age to get, um, to get, plastic surgery, right, things like that. So there, we have thresholds where we say yep. you can't do, you can't drink at a certain point, yeah. you can't smoke at a certain point. Yeah, absolutely. So what would you say should be the rules about... About uh, access to, to like, medical interventions yeah, or something like that. interventions. And, yeah. and who do you think should decide? Should it be the parents? 
Uh, should they have final say or should the kid have final say? Because in this province, mm. I mean, one of the things I grew up with here that I think is really great, I uh, saved a lot of my friends like a lot of headaches and a lot of, you know, abortions and things like that, was that you could get uh, birth control, I think it was like 14. Yeah. You could get birth control without your parents knowing. Right. Which saved so many of my friends from un having unwanted pregnancies. Right. And for those who did have unwanted pregnancies, you could get an abortion without your parents knowing. Right. Uh, I think it was 14 also, right? Yeah. So this was amazing. Right. This solved so many problems. So, so if, yeah. if they can get a, a major operation like yep. an abortion, and if they can get... Um, birth control pills which are basically hormones yeah if they can get that by their own decision at 14 yep. why shouldn't a trans kid be allowed to get it at 14 without the parents absolutely knowing anything absolutely in theory that is actually legally the threshold that we use right now oh really yeah i mean oh, wow. that we we do follow that legal threshold now i'll i'll throw a caveat in there though because this is something which I think a lot of people are still very unfamiliar about. They have strong feelings about, maybe because of misunderstandings. If we had a little less emotion involved about this and actually understood that, you know, outcomes don't have to always be bad and people sort of have this like image in their mind that it's going to be bad outcomes if X happens or Y happens. If we actually talk about real data and real uh, findings and actually individual experiences in, in the case of a family, their own child's experience, then I think maybe we would be able to kind of just really adhere fully legally to that without necessarily worrying that families are going to, for lack of a better term, freak out. So our the caveat I'm, I'm, I'm adding is that our approach is always to try to involve the family, even though legally it's true at 14, a, a teen, a young teen, can access hormone blockers or hormones or something like that. Surgeries are a different issue altogether. And surgeries is not something I personally deal with. We will, we will um, talk about it sometimes, but it's, that's something that happens for older teens um, or adults, young adults. So surgery is like, you know, we're really kind of like, we're getting, we're crossing a different threshold there and it's very individualized. But when it comes to say hormone blockers to slow down puberty um, under very supervised medical care, um, you know, and very sort of wa the watchful eyes of the endocrinologists and things like that, or hormone therapy. Legally, 14 is when they have a right to access it, and they don't have to tell their parents if they don't want to, technically. We still recommend that they do. Why? Because it's always going to be better to have a full understanding of what's going on. This is not the same kind of thing as um, having an abortion where um, you know, if the parents found out, you know, there's, per, you know, in the, in the old days, and I'm saying old days, and then we're talking maybe only 20 years ago, so we're not talking 100 years ago, but even 20 years ago, there was always that risk of, you know, dad finds out, daughter had an abortion, daughter's life's in danger, the boyfriend's life is certainly like oh, forfeit. Oh, I've got, I've got you know? students, uh, you, know, you know, that are first generation immig immigrants at right? John Abbott College, like, you know, like South Asian students, right? it's like, parents we'll are from like killed. Pakistan or Bangladesh. Yeah. Or the, yeah, for real. Like, and, and, and it would not a, be cool at all. And that is a problem, right? Yeah. And that, that's that's almost almost crossing over into the criminal justice world, right? Because it's sort of like, ooh, what protections are we affording younger individuals when they take adult decisions that have familial? They haven't lived independently yet. 
they're making medical independent decisions, but they're living under the roof of somebody else who might have a different opinion, that potentially puts them in danger. So you got to balance that. You say like, well, we can give you contraception as long as we know you're safe in your home in case somebody finds out. Because by giving you the contraception, you might end up getting harmed by your parents. That's actually do harm, not do no harm. So you have to balance it, right? So the same thing goes for families where there might be a misunderstanding about hormonotherapy or blockers for hormones and things like that. And you say, well, I can't really give you these. If we don't know, you're going to be safe in case your parents find out, are you going to be kicked out of the house? Are you going to be beaten? Are you, is something bad going to happen to you? Like that's a health consequence. You don't just get it because of one part of your life. You have to get it so that it's balanced and and you're safe getting it medically and emotionally and and physically in terms of your space and living and well-being. So if somebody's going to say, well, I'm going to drop out of school, move to New Brunswick, you know, couch surf with a couple of friends I got in Moncton. And you're like, you're 14. Like, I do not recommend this. So if starting blockers is that is going to result in that, maybe this is not the time to start blockers. We're going to have to get your parents involved, get them on board before we can start anything. Because otherwise, we've got other health consequences to deal with. So it's not very cut and dried like that, right? It's not, So that's why the legal threshold of 14 does exist. But we got to use nuance to decide, yes, legally. However, what else is going on? Yeah. Right. I, I was another thing I was sort of wrestling with was I was arguing with a or discussing with a, with a friend of mine um, about her daughter has Turner syndrome, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so, and she's a very devout evangelical Christian. She has very conservative, and yeah. but she had no problem whatsoever. And I, you know, I don't fault her in any way. Um, they gave hormone therapy to right. their. Can you just explain very yeah, briefly what Turner yeah. syndrome is? Yeah, so Turner, Turner syndrome is a, is a chromosomal condition where people, um, our individuals are born with only one X chromosome for the majority of their cell lines. So they're, instead of uh, females who have XX or males who have XY, on average, there are variations. And I think we always ke- need to keep that in mind that it's not that cut and dried either. And people get really stuck on that there are people who are XO and XO tends to go in the ver- in the sort of divert towards female phenotype female presentation so they're they're usually girls female assigned girls they develop with some female characteristics but they don't have a y and they don't have a second x yeah so and they've so got she, other physical she issues she and, gave and they her ca- daughter yeah, yeah she gave her daughter um a, hormone therapy at puberty so that right. she would develop more as as a woman right right she'll never be able to have children correct um, but she gave her hormone therapy and so i said to her i'm like why are you saying it's like not cool to give like a trans kid hormone therapy so that they'll but you gave your uh, right that was wasn't that against god's plan or nature? right <laughs> like, right exactly and, uh, and i was amazed her response she was like oh my god you're totally right she's like, <laughs> it's like yeah it's exactly the same thing i gave hormones to a, a minor under right who would never have produced them yeah the, in the way that that perhaps she wanted if she, if she actually wanted to develop female characteristics and you know have larger breasts and actually have a female adult form people with turners don't make don't produce enough estrogen to do that you got to yeah. give them estrogen to make that happen so if you're doing that for a minor to have puberty um you can do that for a trans kid to have puberty too and and it's exactly the same stuff it's monitored it's followed like the kids with turners have all kinds of other 
medical issues too. So in fact, they're at more risk when you're giving them hormones yeah. than a otherwise well and healthy trans kid who has metabolic normal functioning and you know has good nutrition. You know, you're basically just following them along for their regular healthcare and just giving them the hormones that they would prefer to have and have a puberty that actually makes sense to them, um, just like a kid with Turner syndrome. It's yeah. exactly so maybe this the is same not thing. as much of a brave new world as people think. There's, some, no. there's a lot of precedent out there already for yeah. what we're dealing with. Yeah, there's, there's another condition just very similarly um, called androgen ins insensitivity, where, yeah. you know, people who are born with XY chromosomes, but they tend to be fully presenting as females. Mm -hmm. And um, as they grow into puberty, uh, there's no female puberty because they don't have ovaries and they don't actually produce estrogen. So you got to give them estrogen mm -hmm. at 13 or 14 or whatever it might be in order to actually have puberty. It, that's been done for, for decades now, like several decades. Like we've identified this and medically they're followed and endocrinologists work with this population. It's not thousands upon thousands of people who have this condition, but it's also not zero. The N is not even one, you know, per <laughs> hospital. It's several yeah. per year, quite a few, you know, a few dozen per year um, in different in each major city of Canada, for example. So those people are getting hormones and th they're not all turning out to be completely uh, failed adults or completely, you know, walking around with broken, brittle bones. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, they're, they're carefully taken care of. And that's the whole point of modern science and modern medicine, right? Yeah. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so cool. much for coming on the podcast. Absolutely, man. This I'm is, very happy this to. This is very informative. It's, it's nice to actually hear like, some facts from somebody who has some uh, experience on the ground with a large N yeah. uh, rather than the silly op-eds you know, that we are mainly sort of exposed to. But yeah, anyway, absolutely. Thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast. Thank and you for having me. we have to have you on again because there's many other things I want to talk to you about. Absolutely, John. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks. All right. Thank you very much.